0: Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club dedicated to the comedy of errors. I must confess I rather thought that this was going to be an easy one since this is Shakespeare's shortest play and it is apparently straightforward. Actually I've been quite entranced and spent a good portion of the week meandering through various books and essays about the play its sources and its history. Don't worry I'll spare you the worst of it. This play is considered to be one of Shakespeare's earliest texts. A little reference within it mentions a war in France that started in 1589 and was over by 1593. We know that the first performance was in 1594, and this gives us as precise a timeline as we have for any of the plays. It is worth bearing in mind that Shakespeare's twin children, Hamnet and Judith, were nine years old in the year of its first performance. Hamnet, in particular, would have been at school, perhaps studying some of the various Greek and Latin texts that inspired the play. Might he have written it for them? The comedy of errors is based on a play by the Roman playwright Plautus, called Meneichmi, or something like The Brothers Meneichmus. Plautus had based his play on an even older Greek comedy, which hasn't survived. Plautus's version of the story is set in Epidamnum, a city on the coast of what is now Albania. It features only one set of twins, a local and a foreigner, and features many of the same plot points. There's an angry wife, a greedy businessman, a courtesan, and a necklace. Plautus focuses primarily on the local twin brother. When Shakespeare decided to remix the play, he added a great deal to it, not least a second set of twins. Doubled servants do feature in another play by Plautus, and Shakespeare adds them to his comedy for good measure. As we'll see as we move through the plays, Shakespeare isn't always especially concerned with geographical accuracy. There are notorious errors in the way he conceives the ports, seas and coasts of southern Europe, but at the very least he's able to locate two major port cities on either side of the Mediterranean. Syracuse is a major city in Sicily, and Ephesus was one of the greatest cities of Asia Minor, now the coast of Turkey. It's possible that Shakespeare moved his story from Epidamnum to Ephesus because it's easier to say, or because his audience would be familiar with it from the letters of Saint Paul. I think the play features more geographical references than any other, including Ireland, Asia, Lapland, Epidorus, Belgium and America, the only time Shakespeare ever mentions the word. Ephesus was considered a very mysterious city, perhaps not unlike what would eventually become Istanbul, further north. It was a melting point, a meeting place, where all the cultures of the Greek, Roman and Persian worlds were stirred together. Of course, Shakespeare's Ephesus is also London, a city wherein commerce was fast replacing religion and where fortune-tellers, astrologers and exorcists were wickedly popular. Ephesus is described early in the play as being full of cozenage, of soul-killing witches, of mountebanks, and generally given over to the liberties of sin. St Paul himself mentions that it is notable for the curious arts. Perhaps because the name of the play announces itself as a comedy, the story begins on a very serious note. An old man, Egeon, has been arrested for the crime of being from Syracuse, the sworn enemy of Ephesus. He's brought before the duke and asked to explain his illegal presence in the city. Immediately, again contrary to our expectations of this other Babylon, we get a sense that the law is very powerful in this place their strict control, and the threat of death for anyone breaking the rules. Aegean's speech is quite extraordinary, telling the fantastical tale of how he and his wife, their twin sons, and the second set of sons they adopted to be their servants, set sail from Epidamnum, but were shipwrecked. Two sons went with the mother, two with the father, and they've been split apart for the decades since then. Aegeon's son wanted eventually to go and find himself and maybe even the rest of his family and eventually Igeon had to go looking for him and he's been all over the Greek world in the last few years on his desperate search. Igeon tells the story so well that the duke is moved. He gives him until sundown to find a friend in Ephesus to help him pay the bond of a thousand marks and save his life. I have hunted and hunted to find any reference to the power of Aegean's speech. It reminds me of the respect accorded in the ancient world to a good storyteller. Just think of how Scheherazade stayed her execution for those thousand and one nights. There's also a story of Athenian soldiers who were defeated in Sicily during the Peloponnesian War, and managed to save their lives by reciting passages of Euripides. Maybe it's fanciful of me, but I've always liked to imagine that Aegeon had this in mind as he spun his amazing story, knowing that storytelling here might save his life, even if it's hardly a comparable story in all of Greek tragedy. But he might have learned it in Syracuse. Anyway, the clock is set in motion, and the play begins. This sets us up for the structure of the play, it will all take place over the course of the day that this man has to save his own life. Ancient drama usually observed what are known as the Aristotelian unities of time, space and action. More simply, this just means that a story takes place in a unified time, usually over the course of a day, in a unified space, usually in front of someone's house or palace, and that there's a focus to what's going on in unity of action. They're named after Aristotle, one of the earliest theorists of drama, among other things. For the most part, Shakespeare isn't especially bothered with these. Think of the number of locations and stories one can find within any given play. But this play is quite Aristotelian indeed. It all takes place on the streets of Ephesus. It all takes place on a single day. We go from something like mid-morning to the dreaded five o'clock, when Igeon must pay or die. It is worth noting that the good people of Ephesus conform to a famous description of the good people of Ireland who eat their dinner in the middle of the day. Having set up this strict world with midday meals, harsh laws and death penalties and set the clock ticking, Shakespeare creates a rather dazzling ball of confusion. The fun of the play is that all of these rules and structures we think are in place will all have to come apart at the seams. We meet a man, Antiphilus, and his servant, Dromeo, both from Syracuse, fresh off the boat that morning. A kindly local quickly tells them that they should hide where they come from, since that very day one of their countrymen is about to be executed for having been caught here in Ephesus. So they try to blend in. Antiphilus proposes that he will go and lose himself in the town. This is no accidental turn of phrase. He continues in one of the play's most famous speeches, I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who, falling there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. So I, to find a mother and a brother, in quest of them, unhappy, lose myself. Already we know that it's his own father that is due to be executed. Our knowledge of who's who is what makes the play so funny. But Shakespeare doesn't make it easy. No sooner has he had this moment of introspection, it appears that Romeo comes back from his errand. Of course, it is in fact Romeo of Ephesus who has been sent to bring Antiphilus of Ephesus home because dinner is ready. Antiphilus of Syracuse, who he actually meets, is not amused at what he assumes is his servant's joke. This local Romeo starts to think that his master is mad. Now I'm not going to recount all of the intricacies of the plot since that alone would make for a rather long podcast. The confusions begin with the Dromios and one Antiphilus, but then the madness and the confusion start to expand. Local merchants associates of Antiphilus of Ephesus are in the middle of various dealings with him. He has ordered a chain as a present for his wife, and there's a whole back and forth over that. There's a prostitute that he visits when he is denied entry to his own home because Antiphilus of Syracuse is eating with his wife instead, and eventually the deaths, confusions, panic, anger and madness result in a fake exorcism and half of the city piling up at the doors of the Priory when the abbess appears. She has one of the best first lines for any character in Shakespeare, when she gets to tame the madden crowd and cry out, be quiet people. Of course. This abbess is Emilia, the wife that Aegean lost off the coast of Epidamnum, and eventually the two sets of twins are restored when they're both spotted on stage together. Questions about how Emilia managed to live so long in the same city as the two boys with whom she arrived, and indeed how two sets of twins from opposite sides of the Mediterranean all managed to wear identical clothes on the same day, seem to be beside the point. From as far back as Euripides' obscure play Aeon, all the way to Oscar Wilde's importance of being earnest, there is a delight in watching stories of family reunions, however improbable, and a little part of all of us rejoices when we see a mother get her children back, a brother find his brother, a father his son. It's all the more poignant in this play, since Shakespeare really plucks on the heartstrings in the moment when Antiphilus of Ephesus does not recognise Aegean, and the old man can do little but weep at how time has aged him. Shakespeare must have known very well what it was like to be away from his children, and you feel there's a particular joy in this play when a man and wife are reunited with their twins at the end. Time is mentioned throughout the play. People are constantly asking what time it is. The boys from Syracuse often get the time wrong, and at one point there's a concern that time might even be running backwards. This is part of a larger sense that things just aren't quite right in Ephesus. Not quite something rotten, but definitely something very curious indeed. This play has more talk of magic than A Midsummer Night's Dream. It has more mention of witches than Macbeth, and more talk of Satan than any other play. Amazingly, this short text also talks about madness more than any other play. One might have thought that Hamlet would clinch that crown, but it and Twelfth Night, interestingly enough, come second on the list after The Comedy of Errors. Twelfth Night is another play that features shipwrecked twins, confusions, and a quack doctor, but we'll talk about that another time. So, Ephesus is a weird place, and therefore it might not at all be surprising to encounter one's doppelganger there. We don't know that there will actually even be a happy reunion until the very end, and as is always the case in the best comedy, it's funny to us because the stakes are increasingly serious to the people involved things just get weirder and more dangerous for the Antiphilus brothers and the Dromios. No less a thinker than Plato wrote in his Cratylus that one of the most basic elements of our reality is that we are each a unique individual in the world. Elsewhere, Plato also wrote that in his Ideal Republic there would be no theatre, since of course theatre itself relies on a kind of artificial doubling, a recreation of the world in performance. For Shakespeare, The idea of this doubled self was very close to home. Identical twins are fascinating to us because they are two, but also one. They are unique, but not unique, since they are also identical. Stories abound of how twins have particularly distinct connections, sometimes bordering on the telepathic even. So again, Ephesus is the perfect setting for such anomalies. It's no wonder then that Antiphilus of Syracuse hopes to lose himself in the ocean to find that other drop, his other self, his twin. This being a Shakespearean comedy, he manages rather conveniently to pick up a wife over the course of the day. She is Luciana and her sister is married to the other Antiphilus. Luciana is entirely Shakespeare's invention, a further expansion of Plautus's original. In Plautus's original, there is one shrewish wife, uh, and she's translated into Adriana in the Shakespeare play, who is a rather more sophisticated and interesting woman than anything that survives in Latin. Having moved to a new city, he expands the population and fills it with many more interesting characters. This new city, Ephesus, is also the setting for the final scenes of Pericles, one of Shakespeare's latest plays, I can tell you now that it will be the last play that we get to on this odyssey through our book club. Ephesus was famous for the letters of Saint Paul and also as the city to which Mary, the mother of God, went and lived out the rest of her life. In the ancient world, it was famous too as the home of the temple of Artemis or Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was a virgin goddess and perhaps it is possible that Shakespeare was blurring the lines between holy virgins by setting the play here. There's a joke about vestal virgins in the play too, but that's more about a kitchen wench tending the hearth than any sacred celibacy. Rather than Emilia being the abbess of the Temple of Diana, Shakespeare actually calls her house of worship a priory. Almost everyone in his audience could have known that the theatre where the Lord Chamberlain's men performed before they moved to the globe, was built on the grounds of what used to be the Benedictine Priory of Holywell. It could make sense, therefore, to see Emilia as a Catholic nun, an inhabitant of a holy place that has not stood the test of time. At the end, Emilia gives a very beautiful speech. Thirty-three years have I but gone in travail of you, my sons, Until this present hour, my heavy burden ne'er delivered. The Duke, my husband, and my children both, and you the calendars of their nativity, go to a gossip's feast and go with me, after so long grief, such festivity. Thirty-three years, heavy burden for a mother, and nativity. Each of these little phrases really does start to echo Mary, the mother of Christ, one little tidbit that I did not know at all. Gossip comes from the word god-sib, which means godmother or godfather. A gossip's feast, therefore, is a celebration after the baptism of a child, or when a child is welcomed into a community. She, Amelia, invites all that are assembled at this place to the celebration, and thus undoes the misery caused by the various awkward and thwarted meals that others have had throughout the day. Despite having bolted the doors earlier, she now opens them and welcomes everyone into the priory. There's something almost spiritual about this ending. Unlike other comedies that all seem to end in weddings, this one ends in a family reunion and rebirth. Earlier in the day, Antiphilus of Syracuse insisted that he is but two hours old in Ephesus, only appropriate then that this newborn be baptised and celebrated by the end. It is the two Dromios that get the last words of the play. I have to ask, though, are any other servants in Shakespeare subject to so much abuse? They feel to me like descendants of the put-upon servants of Greek and Roman comedy, brothers of those who appear in the Commedia dell'Arte. The violence they endure is slapstick, but it is startling how much they have to go through all the same. The play goes through a systematic exploration of the effects of all of this crazy business on a community – We start with the perceived lowest, who are the foreigners and servants, and then society women, then merchants, and finally, the perceived highest, the Duke. Nobody is actually mad or crazy, but the play does show how thin our grip on reality can be. The only difference between sanity and madness might just be how everyone else perceives you. I myself have had very happy experiences with this play, It was the first Shakespeare play that I ever experienced in a professional rehearsal when Ninagawa directed an all-male production in Tokyo. A production of this story also has the distinction of being, I think, the funniest show I've ever seen, and that was an American company who reworked it as the Bomity of Errors and created an all-rap, all-male production that is quite unlike anything I've ever heard. The audio, I think, has been recorded and you can probably find it on YouTube, and it's called The Bomity of Errors. Also available online is another American production by the Flying Karamazov Brothers, whose version combines just about every circus juggling and acrobatic trick you can imagine. I've never seen any show crammed so full of stunts and gags, but hey, the meaning of the word farce actually comes from the French for stuffing. So it's rather appropriate. It's also beautifully spoken and great fun, and the Adriana in it twirls a baton like nobody you will ever see. To those who might discount this play as early or simple, or too short even, I'd encourage you to have another look. In this play, Shakespeare really is laying out his stall, and from it we can see the seeds of many of the themes and fascinations that will blossom in the plays to come. For next week, we'll move away from comedy, mostly, and have a read of a great favourite for many, Romeo and Juliet. There'll be a link to the full text of the play on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and I'll speak to you next week.